0: Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Okay, we're here with Dr. Sarp Axel. Sarp, welcome back to Healthful Woman. Glad to be back. For those of you listening, the first podcast today, The World According to Sarp, was recorded on March 11th, which was before New York City blew up with corona. And interestingly, at that time when you and I were talking, we talked a lot about your involvement in advocacy, specifically for women's reproductive rights, but just the idea of getting involved and helping and sort of that that next level beyond just medicine. And then after corona hit, it's it's so interesting because- you got involved again in a different type of advocacy related to uh, personal protective equipment to PPE and i thought what a great follow up to that to discuss what's going on which will be you know sort of contemporary and give an opportunity to discuss that new uh, advocacy that you got involved in
1: yeah it's 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 been a whirlwind last couple six weeks six now moving on seven weeks i got connected through through personal contacts you know folks knew me as as their, you know, healthcare worker. When people said doctor, I, I popped into mind. So they started connecting me with people who really had nothing to do with the healthcare space, but they had something to do with how personal protective equipment was being manufactured and the supply chain. These contacts were completely out of you know, left field. They were technologists, entrepreneurs, folks that, you know, lived in China and did environmental consulting for large corporations and manufacturing businesses.
0: But I think it's also when you when you're involved in advocacy and you're known as that kind of person and you're out there, uh, that's the reason people are going to look to you. They say, all right, who do I know? And like, oh, yeah, I know Sarp. He's like, he does these things. He's, he's involved. He's on the inside. It'd be very natural To reach out to you, but I want to I want to take a step back just for our listeners. What exactly is the problem that you're trying to address here? You and your colleagues, not just you, obviously. What What is the problem you're trying to address? When Corona
1: hit, a lot of these hospital systems had to dig deep into their their stockpile of personal protective equipment. And I guess we could take a a step further and talk a little bit about what what that entails. This is equipment that healthcare workers, whether they're they're nurses, physician assistants, physicians, phlebotomists, they they use to protect themselves in healthcare situations when they're taking care of patients and this could be as simple as a pair of gloves or it could be as complex as you know, a gown with various gradations of of protection from environmental fluids, or it could be masks. And what we saw from the get-go, particularly because corona, this coronavirus, the novel coronavirus 2019, was a respiratory pathogen, we started to see a very particular type of mask being utilized. And most hospitals didn't keep a very deep stockpile of this mask, specifically the the N95 respirator mask. And so we immediately, within a matter of a week to 10 days, we started to get reports that a lot of healthcare workers were going to work, were expected to take care of patients that were suspected to have been a part of or exposed to gatherings where there might have been high risk exposure to this new virus and now they're ending up in emergency departments. They're getting admitted and they're they're even sicker being admitted to, you know, intensive care units. And so the healthcare workers that are taking care of them, every time they see another patient, infection control protocols typically before this pandemic required disposing of this equipment that's used. So gloves, you don't you don't take from patient to patient masks are disposable one time use but with the supply being as short as it as it was because it wasn't as needed before and so they're therefore not stockpiled a lot of these healthcare institutions and hospitals were running out pretty rapidly of what they what they had in their in their storerooms right
0: i think it's important sort of to to emphasize that through medical school residency fellowship and all of my years You know, the only time we really had to wear these respirator masks, I mean, sort of uh, practically was if someone had suspected tuberculosis. Exactly, and, and that, you know, it happened and based on what hospital you're in and what population you took care of, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like it never happened, but it wasn't that common. And so, you know, they had a protocol in place that you'd have to sort of get fitted, so to speak, because the, the difference is, you know, the regular mass that people typically wear to maybe your, you know, your dental assistant wears or someone wears, you know, if they're drawing your blood or this is really just meant. So in case, you know, they cough or they sneeze, it doesn't, you know, get on you and and vice versa. But that's really, you know, for like, for like liquid. But the idea of these respirator masks is if there's things you could catch just from breathing the air. And so what they do is they filter the air. So the stuff that, you know, can affect you stays on the mask. And the only thing that goes through is the air. So in order to do that, you need a different kind of mask that basically puts a seal around your face. And so it has to fit properly and has to work properly. So we get, you know, fitted so to speak, and you would have you know written down somewhere what your size was. And so when you went to the patient's room who may have either they have tuberculosis or potentially tuberculosis, you'd put on the mask and the gown and the whole thing. You'd see them, then you walk out and you throw everything out and no one thought twice about it. And then suddenly we have to do this all day, every day. And like you said, I mean, no hospital had an, enough of this in supply because who would need it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I can count before this hit New York City, I could count on one hand. The number of times that I've used an N95 respirator. And now I feel like I can't go anywhere without my n in- It's very interesting.
0: There was a problem that there weren't enough, but it wasn't this like sinister thing that like hospitals weren't allowing their healthcare workers right. to, to have them. it's They just simply didn't have them. It, what, they weren't right. available.
1: B- because they, yeah, they, they weren't available and they weren't as needed. And so then that brings us to, that's the setting, if you will, on which COVID-19 arrived. And so when it did, hospitals started to, they, they started to realize that they were running low on supplies. They went to their usual avenues of replenishing those supplies, and the responses that they got were that we don't have them. We, You know, the distributors that they typically go to, having, having spoken to a couple of hospital administrators over the last couple of weeks, the process by which units and hospitals replenish the supply was as simple as sending an email to this guy, Bob and saying, hey, remember those respirator masks that we had? We need a restock of that. And Bob would get back to you within a couple hours and say, sure, no problem. We've ordered the usual. Folks in procurement, they knew they needed N95 respirators. And the the other interesting part is there is actually systems in place where there's a middleman and there are laws to protect these middlemen so that you, hospitals and healthcare institutions can really only receive these supplies, the healthcare medical grade supplies from certified middlemen, which has created a bottleneck. And so when you can't turn to your typical individuals to resupply, you can't get the supplies that your employees need. And that's where I, my my sort of ragtag connection to folks in distribution and and supply chain management sort of that's kind of where it took off i started speaking to folks who deal with masks in in other settings you know a lot of industry industrial environmental services require a certain level of protection when they're when folks are working in in manufacturing factories. Similar to medical settings, they they also need to be protected from particulates primarily, not so much pathogens as you and I would, would normally think of in terms of like viruses and bacteria, but just making sure that particulates that could clog up the lungs don't get inside.
0: Or also mold or asbestos or things like that as well, which exactly. are, are, are yes. pathogens, but more of a, in a construction area more so than a medical area.
1: Exactly. And a lot of these respirators are and have been produced in China, which is, is where things start to get really interesting. Because China was hit first and, and foremost, the entire supply chain from the start had stalled. Factories were, were shut down. Employees were, were forbidden. There was a government mandate against going back to work. There literally were no masks being produced. And so you have this situation where you have hospitals that need it in the U.S., their distributors don't have any supply coming in because the factories that are making the masks are shut down. And that's where I found myself a week or so after we recorded our last podcast.
0: Right. And it's also it's the hospitals and these the the middlemen, so to speak, they don't have as much of an ability to be nimble in this regard, because it's not, you know, it's not like they can just go on Amazon and, and buy these things because, you know, they're talking about this is stuff they need to take care of patients and they have to be certain that it's not fraudulent, that it's made by the right people, that it's inspected, that, you know, all the things they have to ensure. I mean, because you can imagine what a horrible situation would be if, if a hospital's like, oh, my God, we're running out of it. I'm going to go to Costco and pick up, you know, these N95 masks. And then you find out that they weren't adequate and suddenly right. it's like everyone in the hospital's been exposed it would be a disaster and so their hands are tied in a certain way to try to figure out this problem and it's it's not an issue of money right the hospitals you know have the money to pay for it it's or priority it's really just supply they couldn't get that right.
1: that's where a lot of these contacts started to get emails saying hey i know we don't have the N95s because the the, the other thing that i started to learn was that the US government through the Food and Drug Admi- Administration dictate what manufacturers are recognized for importation of these respirator masks. So not just any factory can produce these, they won't be acknowledged by the FDA, and so therefore, they're, they're, even if they had masks, that the integrity of the mask and, and the performance of the mask is fine. If they're not recognized by the FDA, they can't be imported into the United States. There aren't that many factories even that are that are recognized by the FDA to be able to produce these masks, let alone factories that are open and functioning.
0: When you started getting involved, what did you notice in terms of which hospitals or which healthcare settings had the biggest problem finding enough PPE for their uh, healthcare workers?
1: the way that disparities work it's it's always the the hospitals that are serving those individuals that are the least represented those lowest on the socioeconomic totem pole if you will those in the bronx those in brooklyn queens were you know the areas that were the most heavily hit by the virus were, were you were hearing you were starting to hear stories from emergency departments that they were reusing masks for weeks on end, shifts on end. In the early days, hearing that masks were being reused between patients was enough to put any of us in weird state of mind. You know, we, we just, you just don't know what it means that you're using the same protective equipment to go from one patient to another and what kind of risk you're putting yourself at, but also what kind of risk you're putting the patients that you're seeing at
0: do you believe or have you found that you know when you're saying the the hospitals that are in the areas of greatest need or maybe you know from socioeconomic standpoint are different that they have the greatest lack of the the equipment is that because they have a bigger demand for it and so sort of everyone has the same amount to start out with but they're using it more or is it because they just can't get it as much or they don't have the same connections potentially or is it, you know, everyone has the same connections, but for whatever reason, you know, the connections will prioritize the other hospitals first. What, what did you see is, was the, the the root of that problem?
1: In the early days, I, everyone was sort of in the same boat. You know, everyone was running out of PPE. The number of cases coming into the emergency room was skyrocketing to levels that no emergency emergency room in, in the city had, had seen before. And so I think there, there was a sense that like, we're all a community, we're all in this together, and everything was you know extremely dire at every single moment, a very high urgency and Then, as different hospital systems with their different networks connections that their executives had, networks that their their public relations and and media and marketing departments had to the media or to other corporations that were able to donate either funds or supplies directly you started to see certain hospitals names coming up more and more not just in social media but also traditional you know press so presbyterian nyu you know mount sinai they they have the the depth to be able to get some, get supplies when there are supplies that need to be gotten from their personal contacts. And so that was a big part of what we were seeing. We were starting to see a lot of personal donations from celebrities or executives that, that were saying, hey, I know so-and-so, let's try to get you a, a, a set to hold you over for a couple days or like a week. And the areas that you weren't really seeing that in primarily were the H uh, HHC, the New York City Health and Hospital Corporation Hospitals, or those smaller community hospitals in in Brooklyn or Queens or up in the Bronx, where you know their operating budgets were are, are fractions of what these larger healthcare systems are. You know, I Montefiore, having trained there, I, I had a lot of contacts and you know, hearing some of the stories that that my colleagues were being put in, it's it's heartbreaking being asked to reuse masks in a way that you know you're not supposed to and trying to decide between, you know, do I take care of myself or do I take care of this patient that might potentially get me sick? And, you know, what are the implications for my family and loved ones and partners? And it, it just, what I was seeing was that the the smaller hospitals that you don't typically hear about were the ones that we're getting hit the hardest. And as our group of volunteer networks started spreading and collecting stories from frontline workers, that's exactly what we what the data has started to show.
0: When you say we, who is the we? Like, who are you working with? How did you come into this? Is it an organization? Is it just a group of friends? Exactly how, how did it come together?
1: I'm currently working with a collective, a volunteer network, that calls itself uh, last mile. We're a group of grassroots volunteers, really concerned citizens, entrepreneurs, tech industry folk who came together through which you know a variety of networks have a variety of you know expertise to sort of tackle this problem of the PPE shortage and we've sort of just kind of come together virtually to work on this. We meet almost every day. They've become my second family, but it's it's really kind of been-
0: Third family. I'm your second family.
1: Oh, that's right. You are my second family.
0: <laughs> but I'll let them take Real, third a play- third, third family. <laughs> family.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, I talk to them constantly every day. We're trying to navigate both coming together and, and formalizing procedure and protocol where we, we just kind of started off collecting donations and and trying to disseminate, you know, match up PPE that was being donated to healthcare workers that needed it the most on the front line in the emergency departments, anesthesiologists, in the ICU where nurses were taking care of really sick patients. And so we we have this collective. Um, I, I think we started off as strangers, but we've definitely grown into a, a tight-knit family.
0: And so this is a group, as you said, from, from all different backgrounds and expertise. How Are you the only physician? Are there other physicians or healthcare workers in this group?
1: I'm the only physician in the New York City chapter. And so The Last Mile has several chapters across the states in various metro areas, Boston, D.C., Chicago, New Orleans, which was particularly heavily hit, LA, San Diego. So I'm the I'm the only one in the New York City area that's helping out, but there are plenty of other physicians across the country.
0: Is Last Mile something that existed before this or did it get created because of this?
1: It's a response to, to sort of what we're seeing. It's a response to our government's inability to sort of mobilize fast, quickly enough and get you know, supplies to the the front line,
0: right. so so it's new. It's not a pre-existing organization. This was created Correct. specifically for this purpose.
1: We're only about three or four weeks old. Wow,
0: it's I mean, it's really amazing just for for an example, just you know, so our listeners can understand what's what's going on. I remember you know this just started and the end of the week, SARP sends out an email to you know the doctors in our group and says hey does i don't have a car i can borrow and we're like oh all right he's going out he's you know he's got to do something he's like yeah i got to drive to dc overnight pick up thirty thousand masks load them in a car and drive back by the morning <laughs> by the morning and we're like "Oh, oh two thousand <laughs> <laughs> it was only two thousand well, i don't all two thousand were stored in, a, in our practice lunchroom for a week but this is sort of the the type of you know Grassroots hands on, we're talking about. This isn't, you know, a bunch of people sitting behind phones and at a desk and, you know, working the web. These are, you know, people are really, you know, moving around and doing things and using their hands uh, in addition to their brains.
1: That was an interesting story. That was the first action I I guess I did in the group where someone was like, We have 2,095 masks. They're 3M, they're legit, but we were supposed to deliver them to Elmhurst. And Elmhurst said, Sorry, we can't take them. You know, they, they had been expired by, I think maybe a year, two years tops, but because of the red tape around procurement of, of hospital supplies, you know, the stuff that we just talked about a little, a little bit ago, the hospital was unable to
0: accept these donations, right? It's a city so, hospital. They they just can't, I mean, they, they can't. It's, yeah, yeah.
1: And so, you know, this group, there was a, there's a text that went out around like Five o'clock, and they were like, "We need to get two thousand masks to New York City from D.C." Does anyone have a car? And as someone who who previously owned a car in New York, I still it there's it still hurts my heart that that I can't say I have a car. It was kind of insane. I I, I was telling folks in the chat, I was like, "Holy, holy cow!" I just sent out an email, and within like 120 seconds, I got like four or five cars that I could use. And within 45 minutes of that email, I was on the road to D.C.
0: In Steve Inglis uh, sporty mobile
1: in his sporty mobile. Exactly. (laughs) Big shout out to uh, to Steve Inglis. What a mensch. And so we you know, I got those masks and within 12 hours had distributed 2000 masks to three three hospitals, you know in the Bronx and Manhattan varying from labor labor and delivery to anesthesia teams emergency departments and that was kind of where it all started the next day i got i got another text saying hey i saw what you did with 2000 masks can you do the same thing with 39000 and and that's how the boxes came to to reside in our conference room
0: <laughs> where did those 39000 come from
1: so those came from those came from shanghai their story was someone from my high school alumni network was connected to some woman in China who specializes in environmental, you know, cleanup. And so a lot of her employees required the industry, you know, the industrial versions of these medical N95s, the CAN-95s, the CAN-95s. Mm-hmm. They have the same particulate filtration efficiency that the N95s have, the one thing that they're missing though is the US based NIOSH certification that the seed, that allows you know hospitals to be able to procure medical grade masks and distribute them to their employees and so because these can 95s are a chinese standard and the majority of masks produced in china are for domestic distribution there is never a need before to have them approved by any U.S. standard. But they were there, they had, you know, in terms of performance, they're the, they're, they're the same, they're able to do the same thing that we talked about n 95s doing, which was to filter the air and protect people when they're just breathing with a certain seal, both from viral particles and, and other, other pathogens, like you mentioned, like asbestos and mold and, and fungus. So that's where they came from. And they they arrived in JFK and they were sitting in JFK. And my friend texted me and was like, I don't really know where to put 39,000 masks.
0: And I was like, I do. Well, we weren't allowed to use our our kitchen anyways, because no one could sit around the table anymore. So fine, we had boxes around the table.
1: When they arrived, I was told that they were going to arrive at, you know, six o'clock, seven o'clock at night. And so I was like, "Okay, I'll stick around the office for a little bit longer. They came at 10 o'clock at night. And I don't I don't know if you've ever dealt with delivery folk who come in a twenty six foot truck, but they had two pallets worth of masks. Masks are pretty small, but but this took up a lot of space. And it turned out to be about eight hundred pounds of masks that I had to lug into the conference room. But we distributed those those thirty nine thousand masks thanks to last mile in twelve days. You know, we were able to reach over 450 healthcare providers at probably 66%, two thirds of, of New York City hospitals and, and healthcare institutions. So the network is very rapid. Um, it's very human. It's it's all, you know, everyone that that is volunteering is uh, working, is, is volunteering their time, their car, their, you know, their gas. And so we, you know, we're incredibly grateful that I'm incredibly grateful that our that our New York City community has come together like this to support our colleagues.
0: Right. I mean, and how much equipment have you distributed in total so far? This is today is uh, May sixth.
1: Today's May sixth. I think the the last tally is somewhere around fifty thousand that last mile has distributed. Personally, But over the last couple of weeks, we've developed partnerships with other organizations that have supply and, and need assistance distributing to the front line. And there are there are another tens of thousands of masks that that have, you know, been distributed through through those partnerships. And we have another, you know, 100,000 coming in from a shipment that we that we fundraised for through 3M. So we we have we have supply, we're getting there and and hopefully we'll be obsolete within a couple of weeks. That that's our goal.
0: It's amazing. And and what what has the response been? I imagine the people who, you know, who are on the receiving end of this must be uh, I mean, just so thankful. I mean, I, I know I would be just to have someone, some stranger show up at their door and say, Here, I have no idea who you are, but I care about what you're doing and I'm thankful and you know, here's something to protect yourself.
1: Nadie, the the response has been, I mean, the text messages we we have an entire text thread where our our couriers get text messages from the the healthcare providers and it's just it, it's and I've cried a couple of times seeing what people have been dealing with and how grateful they are you know they 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 felt like they could now do what they 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 were meant to do which is take care of people but they felt selfish because they they couldn't really throw themselves into the work. Because they weren't protected properly, getting a lot of heartfelt thank you notes, and it's just been incredibly rewarding work. I'm incredibly honored and, and humbled to be able to like participate in this this organization that sort of did not exist two months ago. Now we're able to help out nurses, doctors, PAs, pharmacists in our community, but the work's unfortunately not even close to being done. Things the things are shifting. The front line is shifting.
0: We're talking about such you know, such high levels of gratitude and such, you know, unbelievable, you know, thanks. And we're talking about a mask, like you're bringing them a mask. yeah It's like, you know, it weighs an ounce. It's this little tiny thing. And for people, it's either truly something that could be life or death, or even if it's not truly life and death, it could be something that they are able to now have an opportunity to help people who are in a life and death situation. And really, it's, it's amazing what such a small Gift can do for somebody in this circumstance when it's the right gift. Yeah. And so, what what have you gotten in terms of response from the the general community in terms of advertising what you're doing, getting the word out, you know, donations and volunteer? How is that going?
1: I mean, the response has been tremendous. I think we have close to a hundred volunteers right now. There are multiple different teams. There there's a we have a team on on marketing and communications. You know, folks who who deal with media and press requests the core of what we do at last mile is primarily around verification of healthcare workers ensuring that the people that we are that are putting in the requests through our online intake form are truly in need and so we have an entire team of i think it's somewhere between 12 and 20 volunteers that that take time out of their day they have shifts that they sign up for, where they call healthcare workers, check in on them, verify their need, make sure that we have a good sense of what context they're working in, which then gets passed on to me and my team, which is in prioritization and allocation. I take a look at you know the verified uh, requests that have come in, and I take a look at the context, the hospital. We've developed a scorecard, which allows us to more objectively figure out where the greatest need is. And I make allocations based on the, the supply that we have in hand, the amount that's requested, and, you know, the level of risk that these providers are, are are putting themselves in. So, you know, our anesthesiology colleagues, folks that are around aerosol generating procedures are sort of at the at the top of the list next to our emergency medicine colleagues. I'm excited to say that, you know, those those requests have been dying down. You know, we're not getting as many requests from folks that are doing intubations or or in the emergency room. And now what we're starting to see is there's a lot of ancillary support in these healthcare institutions that are being forgotten. You know, our our pharmacists, our nurse uh, nurse assistants, folks that, you know, traditionally or not and wrongfully so not thought of when we're talking about healthcare workers but you know transporters that are that are moving patients uh, to and from radiology these are folks that also were not necessarily they're not tied to a unit they don't necessarily have a home base if you will and they're not necessarily getting the the pp that they need to be able to safely do their jobs
0: right and these are people who are even though they may not be the person doing intubation or doing the operation, they're just as at risk and they're just as brave and they're just as, you know, heroic in coming to work every day and helping people in whatever way they do. And, and obviously they need and deserve to be protected as well. I heard you mention on a, on a different interview that this scorecard you guys created is something that other people are now using to help prioritize who needs the PPE.
1: We're, we're talking about it. The, this, our process, everything's about, you know, we're, we're very transparent and open and sort of our, our processes and protocols. And so we're sharing this with, uh, with other last mile chapters across the country Mm -hmm. uh, in hopes that they can tweak it to their individual, you know, community needs, but it's still something that we're, we're in the works right now. The scorecard kind of exists in my brain and, and my team's brain. But the task that we have ahead of us is really putting, you know, uh, pen to paper and making sure that this is something that I could literally hand to to anybody and they could help their community identify, you know, where the greatest need is.
0: A few last things before I let you go. I, know I happen to know that Sarp was on call last night doing deliveries. And this is, you know, uh, your, your, your world is 24-7, as we say. But the first thing, just logistically for our listeners out there, how can people participate? How can they reach you guys and either volunteer or donate or whatever it might be?
1: We currently have a GoFundMe that is going on for Last Mile, coordinated by our fundraising team. We have a fiscal partnership with the Ready Center, which is able to process donations in a uh, tax tax deductible manner so that all donations that come to Last Mile through the Ready Center can be used to, to deduct from taxes. You know, if, if you have a particular set of skills, I would love to hear from you guys. We have a volunteer form, you know, where we're desperately in need of people with cars in the New York City area, or if you're in a, another city, I'm sure we could, um, you know, put you in contact with the local Last Mile lead there. And and ultimately, if you know, healthcare providers that are in need. If you're hearing stories, please please reach out to us through our uh, PPE request form uh, so that we can get them the the PPE and, and equipment that they need. We we have our through our partnerships, we have not just masks, but uh, we have goggles, uh, we have face shields. So it's not it started off as just masks, but now we've we've expanded to to other equipment so if there's a need um, we'd love to hear about it and and Nadia, I'm I'm happy to share those links with you the the PPE request form is request.nycppe.org and through that we can get in touch with folks and even if you if if you feel like you you aren't a healthcare worker Uh, But you know a healthcare worker, please get in touch. Our verifiers would would love to reach out to you.
0: And what about to volunteer or donate? Is there like what website or email should they go through?
1: The website is going to end up being volunteer.nycpp.org.
0: Excellent. And if anyone has a difficult time finding (laughs) you guys, whatever it is, you can always, the, for our listeners, you can just email us at our Healthful Woman email, which is hw at healthfulwoman.com. And I can either forward it or respond back to you to what the proper link is. So don't worry, there's definitely ways to do it. And, and the last thing I just wanted to, to ask you about is- they,
1: they, they, can, they can also find us on, uh, on Instagram as well, ah, uh, at Mile underscore NYC PPE. That's our Instagram handle.
0: Excellent. So there's a lot of ways to reach you guys. I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest in it uh, because it's an amazing thing you're doing. And you know, the last thing I want to go over, and uh, you know, we talked about this a couple months ago on the other podcast, is how do you have the energy to do this and just the wherewithal to not only you know go to work every day, which you do. I mean, I know you do, and you're great at it, and you're there and you're present and you're taking call, uh, but also to have such a, a massive involvement in this, hands on, and also part of the think tank aspect of it. Where does that come from?
1: I don't know, Nadie. I I think I go back to my advocacy roots. Um, I was I was at a conference once, and a, a keynote speaker ended her, you know, incredibly touching, you know, address by by just asking to the room, you know, if if not you, then who, and if not now, then when. And so I I think that. I've, that sort of advice I've carried with me, and it's kind of been my my motto, you know. Just to, if if I can, I do, and I do it now.
0: I don't know if you realize that, Sarp. That's very Talmudic of you. Yeah, we've, we've, I, it's, I, it's official. I, I am
1: not a scholar of the. Of the
0: <laughs> you are now
1: of the Talmudic law, but but I appreciate that.
0: It's um, I mean, this is a theme that's come up. Uh, over the podcast. I mean, we've been doing this for, you know, a little over a month now, and so much of the early content has been related, you know, to Corona and this pandemic. And, you know, this theme comes up over and over again, how through this, you know, crisis, there's also within it, these just bright shining lights of inspiration and just people doing such amazing things for one another, for people that they know, for people that they don't know, and just showing humanity at its best during a very difficult time, which happens. And it's happened before. And this is when we as a people really come together and rise up when we're challenged. And it is both motivating, but it's also very encouraging for the future and these you know very difficult times and what's going to be. And as long as there are people like you and Everyone at Last Mile and other organizations and other, you know, ragtag volunteers who do things on their own, we're going to be okay because ultimately we're going to take care of each other.
1: That's totally true, Nadie. Definitely true. It really hits me at my core. So grateful to have had the opportunity to talk to you about something that I'm really passionate about.
0: It's fantastic. Well, Sarp, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on post-call. Obviously, thanks for doing this and everything you're doing for our city and for uh, people around the country. I really appreciate it. Evan really appreciates it. Uh, all the power to you to keep doing this and to not let it overtake your life that you can't come to work every day because I want to see you. Second <laughs> family. <I> you. <laughs> Second all right. family. All right, sir. Thanks a lot. Go get some rest. Thank you. I right, appreciate
1: bye-bye. it.
0: You too. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's dot ncom If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.